when we went back to the community was, well, we're going with carbon zero and carbon zero by 2030, what do you think? Something special happened in the time where that vision was proposed. And you could hear the silence in the room. There was this almost a pregnant pause. But nobody said no. And a lot of people got goosebumps. You're listening to Think Revelstoke, a show about the future of tourism in Revelstoke and the greatest challenges of today's tourism destinations, along with their most inspiring solutions. We're speaking to you from beautiful Revelstoke, British Columbia, a city on the territory of four nations where we live, work and adventure. The Snikes, the Shishwapmek, the Silk and the Tunaha. I'm Rodney Payne, CEO at Destination Think. And I'm Robin Goldsmith, Destination and Sustainability Manager at Tourism Revelstoke. As part of this podcast, we're reaching out to industry experts and leaders in other destinations to hear their perspectives on how we can manage tourism for a better future. Today's guests are Matt Woods and Tim Bark, who are joining us from Queenstown and Wanaka in New Zealand. I've had the good fortune to work with both of you over the last two years on a destination management plan that's resulted in a very ambitious vision. Could you tell us a little bit about yourselves and your connection to the tourism industry? Yeah, well, um, I'm Tim Bark. Um, my background in the tourism industry is around 30 years, primarily in adventure tourism, um, from ranging from scuba diving, big game fishing, to whitewater rafting and helicopter operations and a bunch of different stuff, and more recently um, as CEO of Lake Wanaka Tourism. Kia ora, I'm uh, Matt, and I don't know if you've been fortunate, actually, Rodney, to work with us or if that was a punishment for the last two years, but we're going to keep punishing you a little bit longer and keep working with you a bit more. So we'll see how that works out, eh? And um, I guess my background, I actually started in outdoor retail. Um, I did about 20 years in outdoor retail selling ski and bike gear. In fact, we've got a few of my colleagues working Revelstoke at the moment in one of the local stores there, so it's good to see that um, a bit of Kiwis over in Revelstoke working in outdoor retail. And then I joined the ski industry and worked here at Cadrona um, Ski Field for about seven years, and then recently have been the CE here at Destination Queenstown. So you both have a fairly broad and, and um, diverse background in the tourism industry. Uh, so just maybe one sentence from each of you. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing the tourism industry today? Uh, I think the biggest challenge facing tourism at the moment or today is... Um, well, there are, there are actually two things, if I'm allowed, two things. One is the, uh, the, the rapid acceleration that tourism was under prior to COVID-19. Um, and then the second one is the, the, the complete decimation of the industry through the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and now, as we're opening back up, it's that really rapid acceleration again. So we figure we've got this window where we can do something about creating a better future and a more viable future for tourism locally and, and nationally and hopefully internationally. Um, and along the way, helping benefit our communities um, and, our, and our climate and environment um, and using tourism as a vehicle to help do that as opposed to how it was previously operated, which was primarily around focus on bottom line and visitor numbers and um, bed nights. So, yeah, the opportunity 
we see as now. So that's what we're sort of focused on. Tim, you mentioned the word decimated. Um, I think a lot of us watched New Zealand from afar close its borders pretty aggressively and quite quickly. What sort of percentage of visitation was international before, during and, and after? What, what was the experience like for Queenstown and, and Wanaka? Yeah, I might jump in there if you like, Rodney. I mean, we were four, four million visitors here into New Zealand. So you close the border and that's four million visitors that can't come in. Um, historically, Queenstown Wanaka was sitting around about 70% international. So obviously that's a, a big chunk of our market gone and 30% domestic. And I think one of the, the great lessons uh, maybe out of COVID here was, you know, obviously giving us this pause to stop and reflect. And at the same time is reflect, we could look at the social license that we were definitely lost and our communities were definitely they were telling us that there was too many people. But during, um, you know, the two years of border closures, what we did do was reconnect with our domestic market and our domestic market has continued to reconnect with us. And so it's interesting looking at, um, we've had borders open since, March 22, and we've been sitting around 70% domestic, 30% international, so it's completely flipped on its head. Um, and I think one of the great things there is that we've, A, reconnected with our domestic market, but B, you know, they've continued to come back, and that's, that's awesome. Queenstown Lakes has set an incredibly ambitious goal, uh, just announced, with respect to climate change and decarbonisation. Can you tell us about that and why it was important to set such a high bar? Yeah, I think we've got to sort of go back along the process here. And so during um, COVID, we were fortunate that we got some government funding to help actually work on a destination management plan. And if you look at the two different uh, regional tourism offices, which we'll refer to as RTOs, so you've got Lake Wanaka Tourism, where Tim is, and myself at Destination Queenstown. And what this funding enabled us to do with local council was come together. So both the RTOs, we actually sit outside council, which is a little bit unusual. Um, normally you'd find that your regional tourism office sits inside council. So we both sit outside council, but we're inside the same district. And so the three organisations came together to work on this destination management plan with some funding from central government. And we thought we had a good plan and we thought it was actually heading in the right direction and it was in July last year after we'd done various workshops and we'd met with lots of people and lots of consultation of two years' work. And we put it out in draft and it came back that we weren't being ambitious enough. So that gave us that confidence to go back to the community and go, okay, well, how about this? <laughs> and um, I think you're familiar with that experience too, Rodney, that when we went back to the community with, well, we're going with carbon zero and carbon zero by 2030, what do you think? And you could hear the silence in the room, but nobody said no. Yeah, it was, it was a really interesting experience because we were actually pretty surprised that, that, that there was nobody saying no or jumping out and saying this is just ridiculous. Like Matt said, there, were, there was this almost a pregnant pause while people kind of digested it. And the response was, okay, so how do we do it? Um, and then it was, it was a matter of, you know, we know there are going to be challenges and it's going to be really difficult, but everybody was just, okay, let's get on with it. What, what are we going to do? How do we do it? What, what can I do to help? I think what's really interesting about what you both just referenced, because I was there and experienced it as well, is often when you're 
going through a process like this, the result is a long document. And it's been led by one, maybe two people within one or two organizations. And they're very invested in it for the length of their tenure. Uh, but something special happened in the time where that, you know, that, that vision was proposed. And a lot of people got goosebumps. Uh, and, and I have read a lot about and talked a lot about the power of a really big vision to galvanize people and strip away petty issues and silos and politics and really align people. And I, I think that's maybe one of the very first times I've truly lived it and experienced it. And that, that's hard to capture in words unless you were there. Yeah, and I think this is, um, we come back to the plan and being really community-led and, you know, listening to the community and hearing what the community said. And, and you know, I think when we get, talk about some of those meetings we had, um, particularly presenting this big ambitious goal, what was interesting, it wasn't just around terrorism. It was, you know, it was our community first. It was our members from terrorism. It was other industries and then it was local, um, local government. And so to see this rallying cause and everybody going, yeah, and if terrorism can help us do this, we want to help. And so that was the cool thing, I think, is that terrorism, um, which is the backbone of Queenstown and Wanaka, you know, like 55% of all our GDP comes from terrorism. And it's probably more than that, but that's what we measure. And so to see the entire community get behind this and go, if terrorism can lead this, let's get involved and let's get behind it as well. And so I think, you know, to your point around being um, a rallying cause, it's definitely that North Star that actually this community can yeah, let's do this. And I think we're we're really fortunate to myself to live in a community that's very brave. Um, you know, our population across Queenstown and Wanaka is around 50,000 locals. Um, Pre-COVID, we were getting 3 million visitors a year. So a massive amount of people. Um, and so how do we actually handle that infrastructure in such a small community? So you can see that tourism is really important, but equally with 50,000 people, we've got these ambitious operators who are very innovative and pioneers and prepared to give it a go. And so, like, already we're starting to see um, examples of, you know, some sort of first movers there. And I think about um, jet boating in particular, which jet boating is a, a New Zealand invention. You know, Bill Hamilton invented the, the original jet boat, and then we used it for farming and recreation, and then we figured out we could use this for tourism as well, so we have a lot of jet boat operators. And jet boats use a lot of fuel. And so it's really cool to see one of our major operators here, Naitahu, who's part of the local iwi here, innovate and develop the first electric jet boat. Now, that jet boat itself isn't commercial and being used in commercial sense, but the fact they've got a prototype and it's going shows the direction that Naitahu wants to go. And then if we can swap out the 30 jet boats in this district to be electric or hydrogen-powered jet boats, that's awesome. And the cool thing that I love about Naitahu doing this is they share this technology with the other operators. And so that's that collaborative approach I think we've seen out of COVID. Pre-COVID, there was a lot of people competing against each other. During COVID, people have come together and started to collaborate and see what they can do for the better good. So do you think that, you know, having this, this really ambitious goal sort of generated by industry in your community um, has become, become a rallying cry and galvanizing factor for the community and industry together? Yeah, very much so. And I, I think um, the week where we socialised it, because I think that's what we should talk about, is we, we socialised the idea to see, are we completely stupid? You know, is this actually what we heard? We thought that's what we heard. <laughs> um, let's actually, you know, 
let's say it and see what people say back. And, um, you know, when you start talking and people hear it, that's when you get that feedback. And you're absolutely wrong. This is, it was a rallying cause that galvanised industry, members, community and local government to come together and go, wow, you guys are serious. You know, we don't know if you can do it, but you're serious. <laughs> and um, nobody wants to get in the way of that. They want to they be part of it. And the, the other part of that is it was a rallying cry, not just for tourism and not just for the community, but for other industries as well, who we're getting more and more voices coming out from other industries going, how can we get involved? You know, working with... Um, often the industries have been working in silos and, and all working for positive outcomes, but we've now got more collaboration than we've ever had between agriculture, tourism, um, food production, um, food and beverage, uh, technology development, uh, construction, all sorts of different industries, seeing how we can, all the bits that we're learning individually, how we can share those and collaborate to get the best leverage out of it. But also part of that leverage is to be a combined voice. And, it, and I think it, it goes back to how we really started this, this process. We knew that tourism was a mainstay of the community, but it's not the only industry. Um, we knew that there was increasing pressure being felt by the community from tourism. And so we, rather than saying, how can we fix tourism, we just asked the questions, what would you like the future to look like? What do you love about this place? What are, the, what are your taonga or your tauka? What are the things that are most treasured and precious to you in your life and your lifestyle? And then how can we use our industries, of which tourism is just one, but how can we use our industries to help deliver that future? And we, and we, we placed it in the great, great, great grandchildren perspective. So if you're going to pass this place on to our, onto our future generations, what do we think they will want it to look like and how can we work on the decision-making that we're doing now to help deliver that future? And I think that's, that's what really resonated with everybody, that it, it wasn't a focus on how to fix an industry or how to make an industry stronger. It was how do we, how do we make our place and our community stronger and our industries are just tools that we can help, help um, deliver that with. I think our timing was also, um, well, is, is, is perfect right now. And so there's a lot of this conversation happening in our district. And so a lot of people are already talking around how can we get to carbon zero. And so it's, it's not a new concept. There's, you know, a lot of people have been, they've already started on the journey. Or if they haven't started on the journey, they are, how do I start on the journey? And so that's kind of where people's headspace is at already, which has been great. Um, and, and then equally, I look at some of the other announcements that just occurred around the same time. And so Air New Zealand, who's a national carrier here, came out with um, an announcement that they'll have an electric test aeroplane by um, 2026 and that they'll have regional aircraft, electrical regional aircraft by 2030. So that sort of gives us some confidence that, if you've got a national carrier that's moving in that direction, because, you know, aviation is that big one and it's a hard nut to crack. And so, you know, we can't not talk about aviation and how are we actually going to solve that. And then at the same time, um, we're fortunate here that the airport is owned 75% by local council and that the airport here is very innovative and in, um, thinking about how do they move forward with new technology. And so the CEO there, Glenn, is um, quite, a, quite an interesting and exciting guy that he's been thinking about hydrogen power and that one day we will have hydrogen planes. We don't have those hydrogen planes yet, 
but how can he get the airport to be hydrogen powered? And so he's thinking, if I become the refilling station for land transportation in the district, then when we do have hydrogen aircraft, he's ready for that. And so he's thinking, I need to actually convert part of the airport to be around hydrogen refilling for land transportation. So really thinking outside the box. And um, it's pretty cool. Then the other side of that is it needs electricity. And we're, we're fortunate here in New Zealand that we have a lot of green electricity because it's, it's generated from hydro, but we don't have enough in the district to do everything we'd need if everybody went to electric cars. The Glen Eakley's going, well, I have a whole lot of airport land. Maybe I put in a solar farm. And so that's the sort of thinking that we've got going on at the moment, which is exciting to see, you know, really traditional businesses like airports thinking outside the square around hydrogen and solar farming. But there, there's a lot of um, other stuff that's been going on here for years as well. We've got a really active community who are always getting involved in projects like there are community um, gardens and community orchards. Um, there's local groups, but also businesses. Another company here, and it's been doing it for 15 years. There, there's an island out on in the middle of Lake Wanaka. It used to be this beautiful podocarp forest. And it was stripped bare um, very early on in the in the European settler days and the gold mining days to build boats. So all the trees were cut down, the boats were built, and then the island was bare. So this company decided to go out to the island. It happens to have a lake in the island at the top of a of a hill, so you can go for a swim in a lake on an island in a lake on an island in the middle of the ocean. Um, so they decided this needed reforesting. So they started planting trees every time they went there and they told the story. And then they, the, the forest started redeveloping and then species naturally started coming back. But then they thought, well, this is a great opportunity to help develop um, endangered species and reintroduce them and get the populations growing. So they've got buff wicker there when you go for a swim you have to be careful that your lunchbox is closed because you'll come out and the buff worker will be sitting there waiting for you to um, to drop something that, that it can hoover up. And all of these things have started really flourishing and been brought, a lot of them being brought back to the island. But that's just one company that's been doing it for 15 years. Um, so part of, the, part of what this process has enabled is for us to talk about and understand and celebrate more the things that people have been doing for years and years and years. Right. I, I sort of see that from both the Cadrona example um, as well as the Queenstown Lakes example is uh, what you're doing with this ambitious goal setting is actually just picking up on the momentum and the groundswell of what's already happening and, and giving that giving that a name and, and pushing it a little farther. Yeah, I think, Robin, you're correct. We're just connecting a lot of the dots. Like, the, the, it's really a lot of the hard work has already been done. And so this willingness and, and understanding and education. And I think, Robin, you touched a little bit on the Well Summit there, which has been a really important, um, you know, sustainability conference that's been going on here. So what do you think, six, eight years maybe, maybe longer? And that's helped create this, um, I don't want to say understanding, almost a willingness. And uh, Monique, who runs it, has a good analogy it's it's like she's been planting seeds for the last eight years and they're just starting to pop up and now it's time to actually build that momentum so you know i think we're we're in a, an incredible position that we've got 
something like the Whale Summit that's been happening in Wanaka for about eight years. And then the example that Tim just used of, of Eco Wanaka going out to Moahu Island, I don't even think Chris Ryder had heard of the word regenerative tourism, but he was doing it. You know, and so that's, you know, here's this buzzword, but you're already doing it. You know, and that's that's pretty special. And then I think we've also got um, you know, some really large operators here that are doing some cool things. And I think about um, a company called Real NZ, who um, ironically owns more ships than the New Zealand Navy. That's how big they are as a, an operator. And um, well, maybe the New Zealand Navy is really small, but <laughs> either way, they've got a lot of <laughs> lot of vessels. And one of their boats is a 110 year old steamship. So you know, we, here we are talking about carbon zero, and you've got a car, a coal burning steamship. And so it was fortunate maybe two years ago that um, Real NZ had actually gone, this doesn't make sense. It's cool that it's a steamship and we want to keep it a steamship, but it doesn't have to be coal. So they've been thinking about ways, how do we actually generate steam without burning coal? And they've made that commitment, which is pretty cool. So 110-year-old coal burning steamship, it's carbon zero. I mean, what an oxymoron. You've done a really good job of connecting organizations through the process. There's so there's only so much an outside consultant can do to help you to galvanize those relationships. And even the fact that we're sitting here with two different regional tourism organization CEOs who've been working together for two years with the city. And there's a lot that's been happening within the district that represents your two regions for years right there's there's things like the net um the net negative lodge in camp glenorchy that sort of showed people what's possible and the the wow conference that's happened to to build up education level and there's obviously a level of um progressive political views within the the region that has led to a an aligned mayor and council who sees the opportunity and the need for something like this could you talk a little bit about that and, and maybe some of the other initiatives that have happened, like, um, you know, zero waste at Cardrona and Predator Free 2050? Because I think a lot of those things have led to the momentum that we galvanised and then saw even further through the process of socialising it. I think you're absolutely right, Rodney. A lot of this stuff has been going on in the background. Um, but everybody has been working on their own projects with a limited sphere of influence. And what this process has enabled is people to see what others are doing and, and the opportunities of working together. So, you know, the work that Cardrona was doing, do you want to talk about that, Matt? Yeah, look, I think let's, um, let's challenge Real Estate Mountain to do the same because I think um, there's some great learnings from Cardrona that um, we can easily share. And... I remember um, recently one person um, did criticise me saying that you couldn't save the planet one coffee cup at a time or planting trees. And I was like, well, you can actually. And this is the Cadrona example. And so I think about when I started at Cadrona um, about seven years ago and we decided not to do takeaway coffee cups on the mountain anymore, which seems kind of obvious anyway, because where are you going with a takeaway coffee cup on the mountain? <laughs> like you're on a mountain, you're going skiing, chill out and drink your coffee. It's not like you're going to take it on a chairlift because if you do, it's going to spill on your ski pants anyway. So we, we removed takeaway coffee cups, which was actually pretty easy to do. But the, the cool thing about removing those coffee cups is the team, which is 700 strong, are like, what can we do next? And so the following winter, the team were like, 
well, why don't we get rid of um, plastic soda um, bottles? And so that was kind of easy because you can go, yeah, we, that's, we, can, we can put it all into aluminium, aluminium. We can put it into aluminium cans and um, get rid of the, the PET plastic bottles. And so, but then you get to water and you go, oh, what are we going to do about water? And so then the simple thing is, well, let's just have cups and fountains and we'll give people free water, you know, shock horror, no revenue from selling water. That used to be how it was when I was a kid. And so, but the interesting thing too around giving out water is the revenue that year in food and beverage went up per person, the yield actually increased because I think people might have actually felt better that they weren't being charged for water and that was actually something free. So we eliminated all PET plastic bottles by um, putting soda into aluminum and water was given away free. Then the following year, we're like, well, what can we do next? And so then we're like, what if we got water rubbish bins, like no trash at all on the mountain? And um, that's quite tough, like, because it, it sounds easy to remove rubbish bins, but you actually then have to be able to remove any pro product that you sell on the mountain that would have to go into rubbish. And so then you have to go back and rethink a whole lot of um, simple solutions. And like, I think about, um, you know, ice cream is a good example. Like you often buy that on a stick inside a wrapper. But if you go back to a cone and an ice cream on a cone, that's the solution for getting rid of that. And so we also then teamed up with one of the other mountains here, um, NZ Ski, that runs the Remarkables and Coronet Peak. And we, um, with one of our suppliers, Cookie Time, and make cookies, they had the ability to do a compostable wrapper, but we weren't doing enough volume as one ski field. So once again, by collaborating with the other ski field, we we're able to do enough volume and convince that supplier to do the compostable wrapping. So once again, we got into the composting wrapping. So where I'm going with the story is it does start as simple as coffee cups because you create this momentum and then the team's like, what can we do next? And so that's been really cool to follow that journey. So I, I challenge Revelstoke if uh, they're already using PT um, bottles to remove them and maybe get rid of their takeaway coffee cups and see if they can go waste-free. One thing in Canada is New Zealand comes up very frequently when we're talking about our relationship uh, with Indigenous people, um, and particularly with respect to, to tourism. I know the relationship uh, between Naitahu and the, and the New Zealand tourism industry is like they're a huge power player. So I just uh, would love if you could say a few words about um, that relationship and the role of, of, I guess, Maori people in general in the, in the tourism industry and more broadly in New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Māori um, people were the first to arrive in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and there are multiple tribes. They arrived in multiple waka, we call them, um, canoes, and there was single-hull and, and multi-hull canoes that arrived um, between seven or 800 or, or more years ago. There, the tribes are spread out throughout the country. Um, the South Island is predominantly Ngaitahu or Kaitahu, which is a local dialect. Um, the north of the South Island and the North Island have a lot, a lot more um, different tribal areas. And, and it's largely because the South Island was a lot colder, so that a lot of the, the population of Māori tended to live in the North Island, but they migrated south. So a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, and as part of the, you know, when we talked about talking with our community, um, a big part of that was talking with our, our local iwi and, and um, local tribes. 
So they, a lot of that, there's a thing that they call Matauranga Māori, uh, or Matauranga Māori, depending which dialect you're using. That is um, traditional ancient knowledge that's been passed down verbally through multiple, multiple generations. And a lot of the a lot of the concepts that have been talked about, and you know, often people see them as new ideas. They're actually not. They're, all that they're, they're doing is reflecting a lot of this Matarakamari, the these traditions and and ways of looking after the environment. And as an example, part of the um, the way Māori see the world is. You've got the land, which is the mother, and that's um, Papatuanuku. And then you have the sky, which is the, the father, um, Ranginui. And then the, you have these various atua, which are um, with the children of Rangi and, and Papa, and they look after different realms within the world. There are multiple stories, but they, they help explain um, not just the way that we should be looking after the land and the sky and the water and the and the you know the children of all those atua, um, but the reasons why because you know what happens when you don't, and it, it was really vital because the Māori people lived off the land and and the waterways and the fish and the trees and the plants and the birds, um, so it, it was you know it was part of survival, but. A lot of that learning is now being recognised as actually really valuable learning, which is stuff that has always been there, but we've unfortunately just ignored it over hundreds of years. Well, I'm ready to go swimming in a lake on an island, in a lake on an island. Thank you guys for joining us and, and inspiring us. Uh, it's, it's really compelling what you guys are doing. and and what your community is doing. And I think we'll be watching on in, in awe and rooting for you uh, from all over the world. I think it's, uh, it's really interesting for us to hear um, the value that you're seeing in, in setting such an ambitious goal. And also love from Matt, the, the challenge to Revelstoke Mountain Resort to, to try a waste-free program. So we'll see what comes of that. Yeah, we're to be honest, we're really interested to see what you guys do over there, and to see to see how it develops. Um, and it, all of the things that we're trying and testing, the whole purpose is if something works, then we'll try and share it as much as we can, so that you know we can create, or others can create the same benefit in other places. Yeah, I think Tim, that's a really good point, isn't it? There's no point if Queenstown does this and the rest of the world doesn't do anything. And as we were talking about before we came on this uh, recording was you know looking at the heat wave in Europe at the moment of you know 18 degrees at the moment in Poland you know where it should be an average of one degree in January and then obviously you know the, the biggest storm that the US has seen around Christmas um, you know with obviously houses out with electricity and then you know the, the rain storms that are occurring in California at the moment I mean it is crazy and we actually have to do something <laughs> we can't wait and you know I was reading this um, analogy from Bill Gates, which I quite like. Um, he was referring to a bathtub being half full. And if we just try to slow emissions, i.e. The, the tap is dripping, the bathtub will still overflow. You actually have to turn the tap off. 
This has been Think Revelstoke, presented by Tourism Revelstoke and Destination Think. Our hosts are Robin Goldsmith and Rodney Payne. This episode has been produced and has theme music composed by me, David Archer. Lindsay Payne and Annika Rautiola provided production support. Our show comes from the beautiful city of Revelstoke, British Columbia, Canada, located on the land of the Sinaixt, the Sequetmec, the Silks, and the Chunaha. You can help this show by subscribing to future episodes and by leaving a review. Next time, we'll wrap up Season 1 by speaking with two mountain destinations that are also grappling with Revelstoke's number one challenge, housing. See you then.